KMTT, Kimitzion Teitzei Torah. You are listening to the Erev Shabbat program, Erev Shabbat Kaf Dalet Sivan, Erev Shabbat Kodesh, Parashat Korach, and I'm your host, Jonathan Snowbell. The Erev Shabbat program is Leilui Shlomo Yosef Ben Chaim Shmuel, Finkelstein. Those of you who are listening to the program last week may have been a little bit shocked, may have not been, as I have in the past complained about about the Arab Shabbat program, and at KMTT in general, we lack listener feedback. Very rarely do we get listener feedback. Just for your information, listener feedback can be sent directly on the site of KMTT, kimitzion.org, or you can, if you have specific comments for me, as in the past, you can send to my email, jsnowbell at gmail.com. In any case, we made a very bold statement last week in which we said that listening to G'dolei Israel is not a blank check to allow us to do what we want. We have to use our shoe called that. And and the proof in the pudding was that B'nai Israel were held at fault for listening to the ten, Rashi B'nai Israel, these ten Nassim, these ten leaders, against the two leaders. They were held, held accountable. And not only were those ten leaders punished, but B'nai Israel were punished and they were not brought into Eretz Israel. The claim was... We have to use our own heads. We have to think about what is being said. And listening to the Gedolim is not a sufficient excuse for our actions. And now, in this week's Parsha, we're going to challenge what we said in last week's Parsha and say, Ha'omnam, is it true? And balance it a little bit in the other direction. But before we do that, we have to go elsewhere in order to do that. And that is into the Parsha. And this is a wonderful Parsha, Parsha Korach, one that I've written about in the Daf Kesher, if you want to look it up in Hebrew can Google Yonatan Snowbell and you'll find a Duff Kesher article about Parshat Korach. And if this was a Parsha Shir, I would go into the nitty-gritty of this. But <clears throat> a very fun and interesting exercise one can do when learning Parshat Korach is try to determine, based on the simple reading of the Psukim, what was Korach's fate. Because we know that some people were burnt alive as they brought Ketoret. And we know that other people, including the Tanvaviram, were swallowed up by the earth. And the question is, well, what happened to Korach? Many of you immediately will tell me, oh, obviously he was swallowed up by the earth. And others will say, as they're listening, oh, obviously he was burnt with a 250 Makrive Ketoret. And the truth is that this is a machloket that goes back into the Gemara and Sanhedrin. And the Gemara and Sanhedrin... Well, that's before the Gemara and Sanhedrin, even though it's not before chronologically. The, the Ramban has one opinion, and the Ibn Ezra has a different opinion, and both of them bring proof from different psukim, some psukim within the Parsha. There are psukim in Parshat Pinchas. There's a pasuk that discusses Korach's fate. There's a pasuk in Sefer Dvarim. There's a pasuk in Tehilim. And from all the different psukim, we get different impressions. To the extent that the Gemara and Sanhedrin brings two opposite but similar opinions. One says that Korach, mina srufimu, mina bluim, Korach was one, was both burnt and swallowed alive. In other words, this opinion in the Gemara found proof that Korach's in this group, and they found proof that Korach's in this group. And the opposite opinion says, Korach lo mina lo habluim. Korach was neither burnt nor swallowed up by the earth, which means that they found evidence that Korach was not in the group of the 250, and evidence that he was not in the group with the Tan Vaviram, who were swallowed by the earth. Again, as to the details, I'll save that for those who give a Parsha Chavosh here, and I'll save that for the listeners to open up the Parsha and actually look at this. It's a fascinating exercise. 
in which the bottom line is that the Torah was tremendously ambiguous, intentionally ambiguous, intentionally giving us mixed messages and unclear messages, to which ultimately the conclusion has to be that somehow Korach belongs to both groups, and more than on a practical level of how did Korach ultimately meet his death, but on a value level, there are two groups here representing two different values in their confrontation with Moshe, and, and Korach somehow belongs to both groups. Now, what are these two groups we have to ask ourselves, <clears throat> and, and to which does Korach belong to? And the answer is, oh, I'm going to give you an answer, is that Korach belongs to the Makrivei Ketoret. Really, when we look down into it deeply and carefully, we see that Korach belongs to the people who are Makriv Ketoret. What do I mean? The people who are Makriv Ketoret have a L'Shem Shamayim claim. They want to be part of the Kuna. They don't understand why they were gypped, if you were, of the Kuna. They want to be closer to Hashem. They want to be Makriv Ketoret. Why was this taken away from them, whether they are from Shevet Ruven, and the Bechorah should have gone to Shevet Ruven, whether they are Bechorim, and they saw themselves as Bechorim, as entitled to the Kihuna. They want the Kihuna. This is a confrontation which seems to have L'Shem Shemaim fingerprints. And I would even go as far as to say that not only does it have L'Shem Shemaim fingerprints, there are even some indications in the Torah that there, there was something about them that was understandable, that was okay. One of those is the fact that Though their machtot, the the vessels that they used to offer the ketoret, was not de- were not destroyed, were not discarded. They were made as a covering for the mizbeach. Now, one could take this in one of two ways. One could say, well, it says in the psukim that it's in the verses in the Torah. It says it's a, it's supposed to be left there as a memory for us to remember the, what these people did. But do we want a memory of evil, wicked people when we would deal with Amalek? We don't leave anything of theirs. We destroyed them and their belongings. There's nothing left. So are we leaving a memory of these wicked people? Perhaps they're not as wicked as we thought. Perhaps they're bad. They did something wrong. They deserve death, clearly, because they were killed by God. But are they evil, wicked people? And of course, the, the comparison to Nadava Vihu, which is in the Midrash, and which is an, a clear comparison from the Psukim, again, Ketoret being burnt from an, a fire from God, the same questions are asked by Nadav Avihu, and, and clearly by Nadav Avihu we don't conclude that they are wicked, evil people, but they are people with good intentions who made a, a very, very severe mistake that deserve death, but with good intentions nonetheless. The Tanvaviram don't seem like the Makrivei Ketorit. They just seem wicked. They just want to complain. We don't want you, Moshe Rabbeinu. You took us out of Egypt. You brought us into the desert. There's no L'Shem Shemaim. It's a straight confrontation with Moshe Rabbeinu, which is ultimately a confrontation with God. And here is the point. When we take issue with our leaders, and here we're talking about Moshe Rabbeinu, we might think that we are taking issues, we are taking issue with our leaders and not with God. But we have to be careful here because sometimes when we're taking issue with our leaders... What we're actually doing is taking issue with God. And here is a very fine line, because some listeners last week may have walked away with the impression that here, Jonathan Snowbell is telling you, you don't need to listen to the Gdolim. Jonathan Snowbell was not saying that. Jonathan Snowbell was saying, 
there's an array of gedolim out there. You are responsible to choose responsibly and with your head and thinking as to which opinion there out there you're obligated to, you're listening to. However, some things are more clear-cut as to Moshe Rabbeinu is more clear-cut. Something that there is a consensus on is more clear-cut. I cannot be happy with certain dinim de Rabbanan, but it's a dinim de Rabbanan, it's a consensus. There's not a single Rishon that questions it. It's in the Shulchan Aruch, it's in the Rambam. I can say, this is a din de Rabbanan, that when the Sanhedrin reconvenes, they'll have to rethink it, because there's this and this problem, that as time developed, we see as a problem. But we have to be very careful when we challenge dinim de Rabbanan, rabbinical interpretations of Torah laws, and ask ourselves, are we challenging Rabbanan, or are we challenging God? And even if we're challenging, in all honesty, we're challenging Rabbanan, there is a concept of gods, that we have to listen to Rabbanan. As God mandated, we are obligated to listen to rabbinic authority. Who is rabbinic authority? Good question. But I'm going back to safe places, places where there is consensus, full consensus. We have to light Hanukkah candles. Rabbanan agree on that. There's Yom Tov Sheni Shel Galiot and Chutz No one disagrees with that. There are Shevin Akim for Anida Bismanazeh. May not like it. Might cause problems as far as conception. But it's a Din de Rabbanan. No one disagrees with it. In all of those places, we can have L'Shem Shemaim Kavanot, intentions, as did the 250 Makrivei Ketoret, 250 men who were killed by God's fire as they offered Ketoret to God. But ultimately we're fighting God and the people that God mandated to tell us what to do. Moshe didn't make up for his own purposes that he should be the leader. He ran away from the leadership. He didn't make up that Aaron should be the Kohen. God decided this. And God decided that our rabbinic leaders hold decisions of halacha that we are obligated to in their hands. There are those people who are just wicked, and they're really just challenging God. That's the Tanvaviram. And really, we don't have to dig too deeply below the surface to see this. Korach was with the 250 people. He was challenging Aaron for the kahuna. He was going to bring Ketoret. But as the leader of these 250 people, he really saw that he was challenging God. Korach was a little bit more complicated. He wasn't just a L'Shem Shamaim person, like perhaps the 250 Makrivei Ketoret were. He was also in the Tan Vaviram's group. He understood that challenging Moshe, challenging Aaron was not just about challenging them, it was about challenging God. And in that sense, Korach's fate is ambiguous because Korach's identification with one of these two groups is also ambiguous. And with that, we will switch over to Rav Tavori. This week, as a slight change of pace from our regular discussion of the life of a major Gadol Batorah, Tamid Chacham, who is Yardside falls in the week. We are going to take the life of Rav Yassel Rosenblatt, who was known as one of the greatest Chazanim of all time. Although he was not known necessarily to be a Gadol Batora, but he was a Gadol Batfila. Yassel Rosenblatt was born on May 2nd, 1882 in Russia. His father was a Sadigara Chassid who also was a great Baal tefillah. 
as Yasala grew up as a small child, he sang with his father in many choirs and impressed the people very, very much. Eventually, he himself became a chazan and in, had different positions in Europe. In Munkach, he was the chazan of the city where the Darche Tshuva was the Rav of Munkach. They would not have hired someone who just was a good chazan. Yasul Rosenblatt was unique in the world of chazanim because he was known for his piety, for his kavana, for his sincerity and davening. It wasn't really the same as some chazanim, some cantors, who seemed to put on a show, but he really davened. Eventually, Yasul Rosenblatt moved to America, and he became the chazan of the more of the of some of the most famous shuls in America. At that time, the Congregation of Tzedek in Manhattan was a very popular synagogue. Later on, he became a chazan in the area that today we call Harlem. Later on in life, he went to Borough Park and became a chazan in one of the big shuls of Borough Park. His voice was so unique. He was, was so well known that he was offered positions besides in shuls, besides in religious world, Many times he was offered positions to sing in the opera and to give different performances in different places. They say that in the 20s he was offered to sing in the opera with a fee of $1,000 for a performance. In terms of today's money, I can only imagine how much that could be in the 20s to offer someone $1,000 for a night. And consistently... Yassel Rosenblatt turned down these offers and said his place is in the shul. In fact, in the newspapers in America at that time, they published a cartoon of people beckoning to Rev. Yassel Rosenblatt from the side with all kinds of offers, and he is seen walking into the shul and said, this is my place. He did perform offstage in the first talking movie ever produced, The Jazz Singer. For those people who remember the movie, there is a place where you hear Kol Nidre. That is the voice of Yasser Rosenblatt. He did not appear in person, but he was off stage and did sing there. Since he was well known as a great chazan, and as I said, he was offered many positions, he did give chazanisha concerts. He made a lot of money, but he was constantly in debt. It seems that he gave away a lot of his money to Tzedaka, and he was a great Tamim. Apparently he was taken advantage of by certain people who tricked him into investing his money into projects that were that turned out to be really worthless. He had to work very hard to try to repay all his debts. They say that he reached a debt of $200,000, which, again, you cannot fathom how much money that means in today's terms. But he, he said that he would pay it back, 
And he really, really worked very hard in going from place to place. And he had a lot of success in, this, in these concerts, Chazanisha concerts that he gave. He consistently refused to appear in operas or in any non-Jewish uh, or non-from surrounding. They say that he once went to a reform shul because he did not realize what it was. And he was there to daven. The moment they realized it was a reform shul, he walked out of the shul. And he obviously would give up any fees that he could collect for being in such performances. Besides being such a great chazan, Rabbi Yassel Rosenblatt was known as a composer of many pieces of music. Some of them were very difficult to sing because the real chazanasha pieces that he wrote were made for him. And his range was one that was rather remarkable. Most chazanim could not reach that range. And therefore, many of those um, compositions of his are not in our world. People don't know them. Some of the more popular compositions are known all over the world. And not all of them are known to be composed by Yasser Rosenblatt. For example, one of the most uh, famous of his tunes is Tushia Malos, a very common tune. I, at the risk of uh, uh, insulting the memory of, of Yassel Rosenbach, but just to uh, remind the people what I'm talking about, I'll sing one part of it. They put the, the Shia Malos that goes, Shia Malot Bishuv. That Shia Malos was written by Rav Yassel Rosenblatt. Near the end of his life, he was became ill. It could very well be that it was partly overwork. In order to pay back those debts, as I said before, he went from place to place giving concerts, and he seemed to really be overworked. He became the chazan of the Svadisha Shul in Borough Park. That shul is a, still exists. It's a big shul on 45th Street and 14th Avenue in, Bro- in Borough Park. But they, pay, they offered to pay him a good salary at that time. And almost in the very beginning, he hardly could come to shul. He wasn't well. When he finally felt better, so they made a great uh, concert, a great uh, ceremony in his honor. But he decided to go to Eretz Yisrael. Some people say that he went there to go in Aliyah. I'm not sure that it was looked at as, a, as a, an Aliyah or as a visit to Israel. But he went to Israel. And at, while he was there, his character was such that many people approached him and asked him to put on concerts for their, for their mosdos and they collected the money for tzedakah. So he really, really worked very hard, but he may, did not make that much money out of it, as he really was giving charity performances. One of his friends, Chazan uh, Quartin, saw him at the time, and said to him that he thinks he's overworking himself, and he should relax more, take it easy. He went to shul in Yerushalayim, which I'll talk about more in a moment. The Shabbat 1933, Chav Dalet and he davened in the Bet Knesset of the Churva. A few days later, he didn't feel well, and was nifter in Eretz Yisrael. 
there was he went to Eretz One of the reasons there was he was there to make a recording, and there is a recording of the last uh, performance, perhaps, of uh, Yasser Rosenblatt in Eretz at that time. The reason that Yasser Rosenblatt strikes such a chord in in my neshama and what made him special more than any other chazan that I've heard of. And the reason that I decided to dedicate one of our weekly sichot about Gedolim to him was, besides the fact that his voice was so great, it's nice to know of a chazan who was famous, not just for his voice, which of course he was famous for because it was a remarkable voice, but he was a chassid who davened with kavana. He refused offers to perform outside the shul. There is a famous story about one of the greatest chazanim of his time who approached Yassel Rosenblatt and said to him, I don't understand. We both are the greatest chazanim of our generation, but yet you make so much more money than I do. Why do they pay you so much more, more money than I do, than I make? And Yasser Rosenblatt's to him, response to him was, you see, when we daven in shul, they daven they, and they pay you because you do the chazar sashat so beautifully. But you see, I also daven tefillah belachash. I daven also. So they, pay me, they have to pay me more because I daven also. The fact that some chazanim were paid better than others was a well-known fact in America. As a side story, there was, uh, at the time that I lived in Borough Park, there were two great chazanim internationally known, Rav Moshe Kusevitsky and Rav David Kusevitsky, the two brothers that were in Congregation Bethel and Congregation uh, Temple Emmanuel. And they made, at that time, a very good salary. There were other chazanim in Borough Park who were known to be very good chazanim, but they were paid much, much less. So someone told me that once that one of the chazanim in Borough Park said to the rabbi of his shul, why is it that Moshe Kusevitsky makes so much money, David Kusevitsky makes so much money, okay, maybe I should make a little less, but why do I make so much less than they do? It seems unfair. And the rabbi answered him on the spot that each person has his own tefillah. Each chazan has a special, unique tefillah. You see, Moshe Kusevitsky has the tefillah that David HaMelech wrote, tefillah le Moshe. That's Moshe Kusevitsky. David Kuzovitsky also has a tefillah, tefillah le David. But you don't have any special tefillah. There's no tefillah in, in Tehillim uh, under your name. So therefore, the only tefillah that we felt that you could say appropriately was tefillah le Ani. The uh, cuteness of the, of the uh, joke it does reflect a certain truth. Most chazanim did not make money. The fact that someone made money showed that he was head and shoulders above the other chazanim of his time. And Yasser Rosenberg, as I said, did make a great amount of money. Of course, he lost it in the ventures that I mentioned before. I read once the last days of of Yasser Rosenblatt's life was spent in Yerushalayim. And those stories impressed me so much that I wanted to share them with people, and perhaps this is the main reason I chose this, the, his life to discuss today. The Arab Shabbos, 
that he spent in Yerushalayim, the last day of Shabbos of his life, he was walking on the street and he was looking for a mikveh that would be open Arab Shabbos in order to prepare for, tefillat, for, for Kabbalah Shabbos. He stopped the person in the street and the person said to him, who are you? What do you do? So he said, I'm a chazan from America. He said, a chazan from America doesn't look for a mikveh. You must be something special. That impressed me much. The chazan from America, the chasadik or chasid, who looks for the mikveh and doesn't just prepare himself to sing in, with the musical sheets that he needs, but he prepares himself in spiritually as well. That last Shabbos, according to the way I read it, he became, posters went up that he was going to Davin Kabbalah Shabbos in the Churva of Rabbi in Yerushalayim. Rav Kook was also at that shul and gave a Devar Torah Leil Shabbat. Can you imagine an all-star lineup going to shul Friday night to hear Yassel Rosenblatt and to hear Rav Kook say Devar Torah? That night, according to the biography that I read, written by one of the experts in the Chazanim in the world, Yassel Rosenblatt began a new nigin, taught a new nigin that he made up specially for that occasion where he sang in the davened in the shul of, of, of uh, the Churva. The tune that he taught, taught at that time was a very simple, catchy little song and I find it very interesting that all of Eretz Israel it's sung in almost every, every shul almost every Friday night. That little tune that was written, that they, they sing again, I apologize, I wish I could bring Yassel Rosenblatt or someone like that, but the tune that goes, was composed by Yassel Rosenblatt that Friday night, the last Friday night of his life in Yerushalayim. Although he was nifter at a rather young, under tragic circumstances, his family lived on. His son was a famous Rav in Baltimore, a friend of my father's, a friend of our family. And his descendants today are the Rosenblatt family. Uh, one of them is a good friend of mine, Rav Jonathan Rosenblatt, the rabbi of the shul in Riverdale, the Jewish center of, Riverda- of Riverdale, and the family lives on, but what also lives on are, we have many records today that are being made into tapes and CDs of Yasser Rosenblatt, of some of his own singing and especially some of his original com- compositions. He really can be called a Ne'im Zmirot Yisrael, and we would say that his memory and his songs will be a blessing for always. Thank you very much, Rav Tavori. We walk a tightrope here. On the one hand, I don't regret or change my mind about what I said last week. We have a responsibility when we listen to G'dolei Yisrael to listen responsibly to them, to hear the other voices of G'dolei Yisrael, <coughs> to not ignore ones that we don't approve of. We have to listen to all the opinions and honestly ask ourselves, which one, which person here is making more sense? 
We have a responsibility to do that. We're not allowed to say the majority rules and say we don't have to listen to Kalev and Yoshua because there was ten against them. We need to know what God's will is. On the other hand, keeping that in mind, we have to be very careful when we do challenge our rabbinic leaders, rabbinic laws, and ask ourselves very carefully, who are we challenging? Because if it ends up that we're challenging God, if deep down we're challenging God's decision, and we're masking it and challenging a rabbinic decision, then we are followers of Korach, and even worse, perhaps, we're followers of the Tanva Viram. Walking that tightrope is not easy, but who says anything is supposed to be easy? We continue in our, our Avodat Hashem, walking the tightrope, doing difficult tasks, and we hope that God gives us the guidance and shows us the correct path that we have to walk on. Shabbat Shalom.